This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning and welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway and I appreciate your time on this Sunday morning. We welcome to our microphones this morning Brigadier General Craig W. Strong, who is the Adjutant General for the state of Nebraska, running the uh, Nebraska Military Department, which includes the Air National Guard, the Army National Guard, and the Nebraska Emergency Management Agency. He is the 34th Adjutant General of the Nebraska Military Department and is a UNL alum on a couple of different levels. So we welcome him to the microphones to welcome him back to Nebraska, first of all, but back to the College of Journalism, where uh, you you had a few footsteps down these halls several years ago. Welcome. Yes, uh, if I can call you Rick, uh, as opposed to Professor Alloway, it's really challenging for me to get over that and to use your first name. Uh, it's similar to when I go back to my high school, I cannot use uh, a first name. But uh, yes, Rick, this is this is homecoming, uh, coming back to the uh, School of Journalism, though. Obviously, the uh, the venue has changed a little bit. Uh, I'd say classic. Uh, uh, building that we used to be in was Avery Hall, but this is uh, something else here at Anderson Hall. I was uh, had the fort- I was fortunate to ha- get the tour, and it's just a great state-of-the-art facility that's uh, preparing our next generation of journalists. Well, we're delighted you're here, and we want to kind of uh, let our audience get to know you a little better. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with General Strong, I will start with a quote from Nebraska's CEO, Governor Jim Pillen, who said of General Strong, Brigadier General Strong is a man of courage, integrity, and honor who has the experience necessary to lead our Nebraska National Guard. He has over 35 years of military experience with deep roots in Nebraska going back five generations. I have high confidence in Brigadier General Strong and look forward to working with him. That's high praise from Nebraska's governor. and. Uh, I know it means a lot for you to come back to your home state to, to be in charge. Well, I'm very humbled uh, by those by those remarks from, from Governor Pillen, who's our commander-in-chief of the National Guard. And that's what's unique about the National Guard is we have that dual mission, both federally uh, to, uh, to support our country overseas and then also in the homeland uh, where our governor is our home, uh, is our commander-in-chief. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm just uh, – it's just a privilege to come back to Nebraska. I've spent – uh, the past four years in Washington, D.C., working at the Pentagon and uh, coming back home, an opportunity to come back home and serve the, the, uh, the, uh, the people of Nebraska uh, is just something that uh, is probably the, the ultimate uh, point in my career, and I'm just honored to be back. Uh, deep roots, uh, yes, growing up in a in small t- I'm small town Nebraska, really. Uh, I grew up in Silver Creek, Nebraska, and uh, some listeners might know where that is. I'm not sure if everyone would, but it is just night. It's about 19 miles uh, southwest of Columbus on Highway 30. Highway 30, the Platte River, Union Pacific Railroad all run through Silver Creek, which is why I argue it could have been the capital. Uh, but at the end of the day, it didn't make the cut. Uh, but no, that's uh, that's where uh, what I call home is uh, good old Silver Creek. And uh, uh Came to Lincoln. Uh, this school brought me to Lincoln uh, back in the uh, mid-80s, 1986, as a freshman at the University of Nebraska. Uh, did my undergraduate work here. Started off in, in journalism. Uh, had a political science major uh, at the end of the day and uh, had some internships in the broadcasting realm. I, I could never live up to my role model of Rick Alloway, but uh, I did my best uh, on some stints uh, in the in the KRNU lab and uh, had an internship at uh, 
uh, CNN one summer uh, as, as, as an intern out there and really just enjoyed the world of journalism. And actually the, the skills that I picked up uh, have come in Come to come to bear, be brought to bear even more so uh, in some of my more senior leader positions uh, in the military. Uh, but uh, and subsequently, uh, uh, finished a master's degree here in economics at Nebraska, and then uh, could never get out of this organization or this uh, university because I just I've enjoyed it so much. So I decided to go to law school um, a few years later and uh, uh, completed my JD here as well. Well, I want to touch on some of those degrees in a little more detail later, but I'm struck by the fact that uh, there may be some folks listening to us this morning who are not all that familiar with the breadth of what the adjutant general's position is. We touched on a couple of the the organizations or the groups for which you are the, uh, the, the boss, if we can say it that way, but what is the overall scope of the role of the 34th adjutant general? Uh, many of the position or many of the uh, authorities and responsibilities I have are, are spelled out in Nebraska statute, but in a nutshell, uh, it is to ensure a ready force uh, of National Guard soldiers and airmen, uh, because our National Guard is composed of the Air Force and the Army elements, and so I'm ultimately responsible to ensure that they are trained, equipped, and manned properly to ensure that they are at a high state of readiness to respond to an overseas mission through a declaration of war or presidential call-up, as well as ensuring that that we have a proper readiness and preparedness for natural or man-made disasters that could strike uh, in the homeland, uh, primarily in Nebraska, but we also will cooperate across state lines to assist other states in times of floods, fires, tornadoes. I actually... um, uh, had to lead a joint task force in the Virgin Islands uh, doing hurricane recovery, which is a little different for a Nebraska uh, officer, but uh, we are there to serve and assist our, our, our brethren uh, when in, in time of need across the 54 states, territories in the District of Columbia. The other piece uh, that I wear is as a director of the Emergency Management Agency, the Nebraska Emergency Management Agency. There are 54 adjutant generals, or they often are called TAGs, the adjutant general, the acronym TAG, 54 TAGs that represent all 50 states, uh, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, Guam, as well as the District of Columbia. 17 of our TAGs, adjutant generals across these 54, also are dual-hatted as the emergency manager uh, for their for their state agency. We're, NEMA is the acronym, Nebraska Emergency Management Agency, which uh, for your listeners would be like FEMA, uh, but for the state, uh, because all emergencies or all natural disasters are local, and then they, uh, through uh, depending on the nature of the emergency, uh, could require state resourcing and at times federal resourcing as well. That uh, is uh, the other uh, assignment or responsibility that I have. One of the other uh, pillars of my position is to uh, build partnerships, uh, build partnerships in the state uh, with uh, uh, interagency, with among agencies, communities, um, uh, higher education uh, 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 institutions as well, but also uh, we have two foreign or international partnerships uh, as well with the country of Rwanda in Central Africa and the country uh, of the Czech Republic, which is in Central Europe. And uh, those are other uh, security cooperation agreements that we have to train and uh, 
uh, educate and work with side by side with those international partners to ensure that we have uh, mutual assured security. And uh, those are the partners that we, we have been assigned. And so we, the three, if you in sum, summation, would essentially be the, the, the warfight preparation and readiness, the homeland and uh, homeland security, and then our, our partnerships. So you're not sitting around looking for things to do. You have a, you have a pretty full plate. <laughs> well, it's I, uh, I did recall I used to be the uh, director of domestic operations and uh, spent about two or three years uh, working that piece of our portfolio. And uh, uh, when I was at the Pentagon, different role. Uh, but now coming back, I do recall when I was a director of operations, I had to have my the phone at my bedside uh, in case uh, you know a bad bad evening happened. Uh, in Nebraska, and we had to uh, were called upon to support. So, so yes, it's uh, it's an exciting job. I've I think I'm on day 120, 130, and uh, I'm it's an exciting position to be in. I just what I love more than anything is just to get out into the communities, get out to uh, see fellow Nebraskans, and also just uh, be with our soldiers and airmen that are out there uh, doing uh, this support for our state every day. The military background runs deep in your family, as we mentioned, fifth-generation uh, Nebraskan, including a great-great-grandfather who fought on the side of the Union in the Civil War. So did that interest in the military trickle down to his great-great-grandson? <laughs> well, my father will tell you it skipped a few generations because uh, the strong my strong family history goes back quite a ways uh, uh, back to uh, Massachusetts in 16. 37, something like that. Oh but when I trace the lineage back for the uh, the first Nebraska settler, my great great grandfather, um, Nehemiah Smith Strong, uh, did uh, serve in the uh, Civil War as part of the first New York Mounted Rifles, uh, and then uh, farmed in Pennsylvania and then homesteaded in Nebraska. So that is what brought uh, my family lineage, at least on my father's side, to Nebraska. So that was a uh, that was the uh, the Civil War connection there in the New York uh, Mounted Rifles. And uh, my fixation, I guess, or going into the military, and again, different, uh, uh, you know, I've been in a lawyer and I've, I've done, done uh, policy work, but uh, the one area that I enjoy about being in the military is like, I like to be in a job that I played when I was a child. Uh, and I, the story usually goes that three things I played in my backyard, uh, football, which I never got drafted in the NFL. You can see me. You can understand why I was never an NFL player. Uh, two uh, was uh, a fireman, and uh, you know, uh, that was a possibility. And the third, we, I play Army. And uh, running around in the backyard with myself and you know, three of my buddies, and uh, I think the neighbors thought we were crazy, but we would run around our neighborhood watching probably too many John Wayne uh, Sunday afternoon movies. But at the end of the day, uh, that's one thing I kind of uh, – uh, always lean back and think about, I, I get to do the job that I uh, played when I was a child, and that was uh, uh, being an Army soldier. And so I never uh, lose sight of that. But uh, it really is about service and uh, uh, selfless service and living up to a, a code or having a profession that has a code of uh, based on values of uh, duty and honor and selfless service. So growing up as a kid in, in Silver Creek and running around the backyard, did it did it did it dawn on you at that time that you might be doing this as a career all the way along? It no, actually, uh, I didn't know if I would ever go career. I, I do recall there were two professions or two things I knew I would do at some point, whatever my profession was, and it was either I was going to be a volunteer fireman or I was going to join uh, the National Guard or the reserves or something of that nature. 
as more of an avocation than, a, than an occupation. In other words, um, I didn't know I would turn it into a full-time job. But in my hometown, a volunteer fireman was a hero. Uh, you know, the local, the, the local grocery store owner or the barber, you know, when the whistle went off, you know, to me, you know, how Superman would pull his uh, shirt and there'd be Superman. These were individuals that had regular jobs sure. and then they became heroes. And I kind of admired that. I'd hear the whistle and I'd go up and watch, you know, and they'd get into the fire truck and be off. And, and then also I had an uncle from Hampton, Nebraska, uh, Roger Bombsberger. He passed away uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and he was in the York National Guard. And I remember as a child just not realizing, you know, I'd watch these war movies and I'd see my uncle in this military uniform. And I'm like, you can be in the army here in Nebraska. And then I'd see their armory with all their trucks. And and then, uh, so I thought, you know, someday I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna follow that that route. And so, but it was one of the two, or maybe both. Some people can pull it off. Pull it, pull it all off, and then subsequently, uh, uh, you know, being uh, I was a reserve status for a good ten years before I went into the full time, uh, full time assignment opportunities, and then uh, twenty two years later, you look back and uh, you realize that time flies. <laughs> well, given all of your current responsibilities, I think you could make the the legitimate case that you're probably there's a bit of the fireman in there right now <laughs> having to put out the fires as they come up in your in your current. Yeah, job. and interestingly on that, you know, uh, being there to uh, support uh, uh, natural and man-made emergencies when, when those times come. Uh, there is a, that linkage to that. And actually one of my first command assignments was to, uh, I commanded an ambulance unit. And that unit uh, was subsequently deployed to Iraq. And when it was in Iraq, it was essentially the 911 of the the Sunni Triangle, if you will, it was a ground ambulance unit that uh, we would receive. Uh, they weren't, it wasn't 911. It was not. They were called nine line uh, messages of requiring a medical support. And so our our unit was a first responder in a combat zone. So it was bringing that all together uh, in that in that context. You did. Uh, you started out in, in the reserve right after high school, as you said, and spent a number of years there, and then switched to the Army National Guard. And, were and you were commissioned as an officer. And then, uh, as you say, you served over in Iraq on a couple of different tours there. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it logically could seem like that was a half a world away from the kid who grew up playing the Army in, the, in Nebraska. But what kind of, um, how, did, how long did it take you to hit the ground running in Iraq and realize this isn't Nebraska? No, yeah, it, it, it's... Uh very sobering uh, when you uh, you train for it for years that uh, potentially uh, and when um, as you use the term when the balloon goes up that your unit is is called for a mobilization and overseas deployment it they I, I will put I put a lot of faith into the the military's training programs and we were I felt confident and you hear this a lot you know you just trust your training and the training that we were provided uh, and I had a very young unit if you will uh, of medics that, uh, and I think I was, I'll uh, put my date in myself, mid thirties and I felt like a very old man as a company commander relative to my troops who were on average 19 to 22, 23 years old. Quite, and I, I think uh, out of a 100 person company, 10 to 12 were UNL students. And so we had a high representation in that respect too. And a lot of those individuals came to school 
for the tuition benefit, or, I'm sorry, join the military for the tuition benefits, where students, the medical field seemed like a field that they um, could um, parlay into uh, supporting and accenting their other professional goals. But the training that these young, young, the, the story, we were young and once in soldiers, these young soldiers that they were well-trained and motivated and a, a medic is a special type of soldier. They not only are willing to stand up and and serve uh, to serve uh, their country, but to serve their fellow soldiers when they're in desperate need. And so the reality hit and, uh, you know, it was a very tumultuous time on my first deployment. Both had their uh, different um, environmental aspects, but in the 0405 time period, that was right around uh, uh, the Battle of Fallujah was not too far in the distance, a few months past that point. And we were also working uh, under a very austere IED, improvised explosive device um, environment. So just traveling by ground anywhere, I mean, that was the, the weapon of choice. And so, um, again, being that 911 on the battlefield with our ambulances responding to just, uh, just on a daily basis, some level of explosion on the road or indirect fire and the, med and the medics that we had uh, were, were first on scene in many respects or with where they were on the convoys themselves. They would embed into the combat patrols. And so uh, when called, um, they would fearlessly do their job and uh, very proud to serve with them. And yes, it was a, it's eye opening. And uh, when you go out in your first convoy, because uh, uh, you had some time to watch the news prior to deploying and just realizing uh, uh, the issues that that environment brought to bear. And then it's just a little unnerving when you first roll out, the, as they say, rolling outside the wire and going on the ground. And uh, just, and it's really not a fair fight. I mean, it's it's indiscriminate. You know, it's a, it's an, uh, generally IEDs were the weapons of choice and you really can't fire back against <laughs> a, a landmine or an improvised um, uh, uh, device. So it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was a little harrowing at, at times, but uh, I was just there, very proud of the soldiers that we brought from Nebraska. And I, I will always say that one of the things that sets us apart is the soldiers that we had from Nebraska. I think we outworked or out-innovated probably any other units around. And again, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm biased. I'll put that out there. But we just had a fantastic uh, group of soldiers from Nebraska and uh, very proud of uh, being, have, having been their commander. You know, we hear that on so many levels that the Nebraska and the Midwestern work ethic in so many different categories of, of employment and endeavor is so highly sought after. People that will step up and do anything, they'll come early, they'll stay late, they'll give 110% every, every minute that they're there. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that same thing carried over into your military experience. Yeah, and I think the, the best or the most meaningful uh, validation of that was our battalion commander who was active duty and I, I, our company was within a, a battalion that was an active duty battalion uh, out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and our higher headquarters, the brigade above that was all active. So we were National Guard from Nebraska and the highest praise I ever received was on uh, about a week prior to our departure that uh, that, that commander uh, indicated that we were his best, he had five companies and he said we were his best company. Uh, in his in his battalion, and that uh, he will he was sorry that we were having to leave, and uh, uh, someone actually told told me or one of our soldiers bet me that when we got there that they would be sorry when we left, and I kind of joked <laughs> that like really and like, we're going to show them, and there's a little bit of a chip on the shoulder that you know that uh, and but the motivation factor and I, I, it all came 
that that bet or that prediction actually came true. So, and to your point, that uh, the Nebraska motivation and work ethic and just wanting to do their best. And the other point that uh, our former adjutant general, General Roger Lemke, always pointed out to this as well as General Darrell Bohack, my predecessor, um, never forget where you came from. And that meaning you're from Nebraska and don't don't besmirch or don't do not uh, lower the expectations or um, the reputation of what Nebraska is, and so and we were very very prideful for that, <laughs> and so and uh, so that was one key to our success is we we never forgot forgot where we came from. So. After several years of that uh, combat um, circumstance and, and the situation, you were uh, you transitioned to the Pentagon in mm-hmm. D.C. What was it like going from being in the middle of a combat zone to, I don't want to say flying a desk, but certainly it was, it was a less dangerous environment in D.C. than where you'd come from? It's a different, different domain, different type of uh, 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 daily grind, but it is a grind. The Pentagon does provide its level of excitement and challenges, though. You know, I, I arrived in the, at the Pentagon in the uh, summer of 2019, pre-COVID, and at that point, I was, uh, I was, a, I was a colonel. Uh, and uh, the joke in the Pentagon is that even colonels make coffee in the Pentagon because of the rank. And uh, I will attest to that, I, and not, beca- not because I had to, but I was one of the earlier arrivers. And so I, I worked in the Office of Secretary of Defense uh, uh, for policy in counter, uh, counter narcotics global threats. And so the reason I had that assignment in the National Guard is the National Guard has a um, mission across the country in supporting local law enforcement and counter-narcotics missions. And so we, my, my job uh, in that office was overseeing the policy and the plans for those there were actually 54 programs across the country and managing the resources and, and the uh, authorities that went with that. So that was a very interesting job, learning how the Pentagon works. It's a system within systems. And um, it's a huge, obviously, uh, you know, the largest um, office building in, in, the, in the world. Uh, and then about halfway through that assignment, COVID hits. And the Pentagon went from, I equated it to walking into Pinnacle Bank Arena during a, for a basketball game every morning, going to work, coming up the escalators in the Pentagon, reminded me of going to Pinnacle Bank Arena to do a basketball game. It was just a beehive of, 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 of humanity and uh, uh soldiers, air, uh, airmen, Marines, you know, just coming into that facility. COVID hit and then it almost, it was just eerie uh, to a certain level. Uh, we were down, you know, 25% staffing and it just almost became a level, almost like a ghost town on a certain level. And uh, uh, through that assignment, I was also detailed over into the National Military Command Center to help support uh, uh, the chairman's oversight of uh uh, what was a special mission, which was the COVID outbreak and then civil unrest. And so there was a crisis action team that stood up because of those events, which the chairman of the Joint Chiefs can establish in times of crisis. And those two, um, that crisis action team melded COVID and the civil unrest into one over, overarching um, uh, operational oversight. And so I helped support the National Guard as representing the National Guard on, on that crisis action team. So that was an interesting period of time as well. Um, very relevant for the National Guard because um, all of these 
concerns of the crisis that was at hand were, was a domestic crisis and the lead element in many of the, well, majority of the support was the National Guard in the civil unrest side, as well as the COVID response, heavy National Guard. So the National Guard had a very significant seat at the table. Um, we, our, our primary goal is to keep the chairman updated on um, exactly, you know, situational updates and uh, 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 issues, reports across the 54 and any questions or requests for information that we, we managed. And then moving into the fall of uh, 2020, I was fortunate enough to be picked up uh, for a, a general officer assignment. And so uh, that assignment was still in the Pentagon. Uh, so my first general officer, uh, my general officer, first general officer position was in the Pentagon. And I really just moved from one, the corridor, you know, the, the Pentagon as from one corridor on the uh, one side of the building, I moved to the other corridor uh, on the other side of the building. And in that position, I was uh, a vice director for uh, programming, budgeting, and uh, uh, controlling for the National Guard. And so that was primarily focusing on uh, resourcing for future requirements, uh, looking out to joint requirements, looking out to 2030, 2035, determine what capability gaps that uh, the military or the DOD had, and I represent the National Guard in that space. And then also through the programming and budgeting process, which is, I always call it like schoolhouse rock, told you how a, how a uh, bill became a law. You know, I, I could probably do another schoolhouse rock on how a presidential budget is developed in order to then move over to Congress and be approved and then continue resolutions and or um, various other uh, rollout processes. So uh, I don't know if any kids would wanna watch that, uh, but uh, <laughs> there it was actually understanding the uh, the congressional process and how the, uh, the DOD process rolls into that and how we develop our budgets, determine requirements, and then uh, essentially um, do program reviews, and then it gets all folded in. And really, you're, you're almost two years out in every cycle. So you're, mm. for example, in the fall of, um, you know, they're, they're, they're working on like 2027 in 20, I'm sorry, we'd be working on 2026 budgets right now if I was back there for, in its 2023, but we're really fiscal year 2024. I know this is so interesting. People are wondering, please, I'd rather watch paint dry. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, it is a in-depth planning and budgeting process, which fascinating to, to really see how the building works uh, and how um, those processes work. So I think that really leads into how thankful I was to come back home. And uh, actually, as much as I loved uh, the opportunities and some of the meetings and uh, um, that I'd be in and the discussions at the highest strategic levels you'd, you'd be part of or, or um, um, be supporting, there is nothing probably more meaningful than um, coming back and being in your own home state and just being out in the field, if you will, um, and just uh, being able to talk to soldiers and airmen and ensuring that, you know, those decisions that were made at the Pentagon, you know, and how do those affect the soldiers and airmen on the ground? Uh, we sometimes lose sight of it because we get really tied up in these multi-billion dollar uh, programs, which we completely need for ensuring our competitive edge. But I'm always, you know, putting in mind, you know, how does this affect or how will this affect the readiness of our soldiers? And, and at the end of the day, that's really uh, where we're at. And I always, you know, the Army and the, uh, the Air Force, they are the soldier and they are the airmen. Uh, that is really what they are. And so that's uh, forefront in my mind. Um, but it's, but to, yeah, that that was the Pentagon experience uh, that uh, I, 
experience all the way up through uh, just June of last year and then uh, was able to have fortunate enough to come back. There's an analogy there to survey after survey that shows that in media reporting and in trust, that even though we need national networks and international correspondence and all of the stuff that happens at that level, that many people in the journalism business feel the most rewarding career is coming back to their local community. And that's where the greatest trust is. That's where they feel they can have the greatest uh, impact on the ground. And I hear you saying some of that as well. You appreciate and value what you were able to do at the highest levels of the government. And all of that background certainly infuses how you do your job here. You've seen this job from all sides. I mean, you've been in the trenches literally. You've been at the highest levels, and you can bring all that experience back home. Yeah, from a from a career design perspective, I've just been fortunate to have had experiences like a lot of my colleagues. But I mean, just getting that the tactical and the operational, and then when you move to the strategic, and I always encourage all of my um, uh, leaders in the National Guard to, if they can, take opportunities to broaden, uh, do a, a, a tour at the strategic level, be that at STRATCOM, which is close, uh, Northern Command, which is uh, in Colorado, or the Pentagon. Those are great experiences for them to come back and help um, it just makes us better back here as well. So, but uh, at the end of the day, um, I will tell you that the commitment I hear from the uh, officers and the soldiers and the airmen and the National Guard, they're all for these opportunities, but there is a strong desire and gravitational pull to be part of our state and being back. And, but I think it's a win-win when, when they can go out and have those opportunities. Part of the, the job at the Pentagon and all the other things that you've mentioned, the, the response to COVID and working with congressional folks to get the budgets passed and all that, the, the political aspect has to factor in there somewhere. And I know that in our increasingly politicized environment, it's tough to put that aside. But I've always respected military folks for saying, I can't go that direction. I've got to do, first of all, what I'm instructed to do, because that's the way order is maintained, but that you work for the country, not for one party or another, and you've got to stay focused down the middle and bipartisan. Has that been tougher the last few years since we seem to be politicizing whether or not to have round or square soup crackers at lunch? <laughs> the, only, the, the only difficult part for me is uh, to have people accept my no comment, uh, because I... I do need to stay objective, um, and my role is to support and defend the Constitution, and uh, as part of that, and then, uh, and I respect that. I mean, uh, I am. Uh, I we stay generally out of policy. We provide our best military advice. You'll hear that often. You know, the BMA. The what was my best military advice? At the end of the day, um, we do, um, as they say, salute the flag and. Uh, uh, and move out uh, when given a lawful order, and uh, that is uh, what is expected of us. We try to influence what we think is in the best interest of um, the soldiers and airmen uh, in the National Guard. But we do stay out of the politics and the policy side of the House. And there's a, uh, a I don't know if it's uh, uh, urban legend or not, but uh, even General uh, George Marshall, uh, who is the uh, Army Chief of Staff during World War II. Uh, rumor was that he didn't even vote 
<laughs> because he felt that committed to being uh, a non-political. And so now that's probably a little far. We do encourage our <laughs> service members to exercise their right to vote. But uh, on that point, uh, it's always that dynamic. But we ultimately, we raise our hand and swear an oath to the Constitution. There have been journalists who have refused to vote as well, saying they don't want that ever to get released, what their right. voting record was. And mm-hmm. I... I'm like you. I think it's 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 our right and it's our responsibility to go to the poll. Yes. But I understand what you're saying there. From a you, you've been spending some time here in the College of Journalism today. How do you and you you started out with some journalistic courses yourself. How do you see the the merger between journalism and the media? How do we each support each other? How do we each need each other? Uh, on the military side, you know, the, I, I think the transparency that journalism and the me, and the media and independent reporting provides is it's a it's a check and it's a balance uh as part of uh what our country's designed uh for that piece and uh it ensures like i said earlier the transparency of what we're doing obviously if there is national security concerns we have to weigh that uh against um uh the the right uh um uh, to know and you know based on our security levels and whatnot but I believe the best approach I've had when I was in Iraq, we had uh, embedded reporters and you welcome in the reporting. Uh, we don't push them away. And they were actually some of our, uh, some of the bravest <laughs> individuals that I worked with were reporters uh, uh, that they had sometimes fearless on, on where they were willing to go and what they were willing to do. They reminded me a lot like medics. I mean, they would kind of move where where the, where, where the, where the problem was and just to get, um, you know, where a medic might be going to try to save someone, the the, um, the journalist is trying to just get the best uh, perspective and be there where it is and where it's happening. So I've always admired the bravery of of the uh, of the uh, war correspondent if, uh, the, or the military journalist uh, to be willing to do that. But I, I think that um, they serve a very positive role ultimately. And, you know, again, I, uh, I can only speak for my experiences, uh, but I will tell you that uh, I know we had some embeds uh, with us and they were very, uh, they were just like part of the team. And uh, not only that, um, it would actually did some, like I think you pointed out earlier, it was actually a morale boost on a certain level. Because it's amazing when a, a quote would get put into the World Herald or the Lincoln Journal Star from one of the embeds that it was very a very proudful, uh, prideful moment uh, as well to get that, um, to get those quotes or, you know, um, for the families and, and their friends. And, and just uh, the articles were, were just another accent to, uh, developing and understanding what that uh, soldier, in my case, soldiers were going through. So that, again, my experiences were very positive. So many of our students get most of their information from social media Mm -hmm. these days. How do you feel the military makes use of social media, both for message dissemination, but also for strategic deterrence? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and and I apologize. I, I am probably still a little old school, probably back, I think, you had us all have to read the Washington Post or something. I mean, we were always being part of uh, being a journalism student. You were, it was in that part of the program having to uh, have a second major and just to be well-rounded and just informed and which I was a news junkie anyway, but how I acquired news uh, when I was uh, in the late eighties is so much different how it's acquired now. I, I, I still watch the Sunday news programs <laughs> and I, uh, I record those and I, I, that's just kind of how I, uh, how I, how I roll, if you will, I still read the local papers. Local, I love local journalism. It's on my phone. Um, I, uh, uh, not, I love the tactile of, of filling the newspaper, but 
But uh, I brought my public affairs officer next to me, uh, Scott Inglesby, and so he is uh, my best source to understand how to navigate the current uh, social media environment and how to be effective in that space. And I and he probably, um, I don't know the term, you know, they have homes that need extreme makeover. He probably looks at my social media and says, <laughs> you need an extreme makeover. You uh, need to keep, you know, stay on this a little better um, because it's vital. That is um, our demographic, you know, and recruiting is something that is uh, um, vitally important. Uh, but if we have to meet um, our potential recruits where they are and where they are is in that social media space. And we have to be able to operate in that space and effectively manage our messages so that we can uh, see that, you know, the National Guard is a, uh, uh, it's a transform transformational opportunity for them and uh, it can fit into their life, life plans effectively. Uh, the National Guard uh, provides that opportunity for the individual who, who, who values service and wants to serve their country, serve their state, but also wants to have a professional career perhaps and, and maybe do both. And so we provide that opportunity. I always use the term gap years or so in now for uh, high school students they have their gap year and we can offer gap years if you want a gap year <laughs> to uh, uh, go through your uh, you know basic individual training advanced training and be able to kind of and that's what i did i came back and was able to go to college and did my training over the summers and still had a normal college experience and uh, was able then to still uh, serve my country and my state so but how do we make that message and and how do we how do we reach uh, how do we reach our demographic, um, uh, navigating that space? And it's, it's, it's very complex and complicated, but we, uh, um, th you know, that's one of the partnerships we would uh, value with the School of Journalism. You, you are the subject matter experts that can help advise us as well, and we, we value your, your input on how we can be more successful in that space. And we're, we're very willing to be, to be partners with you on that because that leads nicely into my, my next uh, line of inquiry, which is, the university has always had a good working relationship with the military through the, the school here, the military, naval, um, you know, courses you can take, ROTC, all the various things going on. How do you rate the current relationship as you see it coming back to Nebraska now between the university and the military? Well, I, uh, it's just been fabulous. I mean, it, it, since I've returned, you know, one, having our Lincoln Air Show uh, recently and, and having university partners, uh, uh, participate and be part of the, be invited out and spending time with us in that in that event but more recently our November 11th Veterans Day mm -hmm. uh, celebration was the university and the um, athletic department and the game day experience team just rolled out the red carpet carpet literally uh, in honoring veterans and military and the National Guard was one of their centerpiece uh, pieces to that. I mean, all, obviously all branches of service were, were recognized, but their ability to um, integrate us into that game day experience uh, in that Maryland game on November 11th, everywhere from having uh, displays around the university to the uh, having the opportunity to flip the coin at the beginning of the game to our band being integrated, our 43rd Army band being integrated into the Cornhusker marching band. Uh, and really the capstone was having our governor, our commander in chief, uh, oath in approximately 30 soldiers and airmen during halftime, who again, as I pointed out, we swear an oath to the constitution. They, they stood on that field uh, as the governor administered that oath and they made that solemn oath in front of uh, 
87,000 uh, uh, Nebraskans. And so that was a very meaningful event, and it really was a fantastic highlight. And then on an earlier game, uh, Nebraska uh, with the anniversary of Memorial Stadium, the 100th anniversary, and we were part of that support as well, uh, providing uh, an honored salute uh, during the uh, kickoff of the game as well. But it really, I was... And the soldiers were offered opportunities to attend the game, and they were treated to just, um, again, first-class treatment. It, it's meaningful. And that is important for us to maintain Soldiers for Life, and that I think that's actually even it was a retention tool, that fact that how well they were received and treated by the university is just, uh, and all the feedback I've received from down to every soldier and airman has just been positive, and the university is just one of the, the best partners we could ever dream of having. We're, we're glad to serve that partnership. I, once a Husker, always a Husker, so i got to ask you this one. While you were embedded in Iraq, were you able to keep track? I'm sure there's a huge time difference between Iraq and Lincoln, but were you able to keep track of the Huskers? Yeah, that was always an important team-building event for us. And actually, when I was uh, – Nebraska's record wasn't uh, was halfway decent uh, during those periods of time, uh, though – AFN, Armed Forces Network, we would generally, uh, our games, we were, we were at a certain prominence level. Our games were getting broadcast fairly, fairly routinely. Going the online computer way, uh, method wasn't as uh, smooth as it would be today uh, in, the, uh, in the, late uh, the late aughts, if you will. Mm -hmm. so, but that was such a uh, bringing, like bringing the family together, you know, on you know, those one day a week during the fall, uh, you know, we had our missions occurring, but we were able to get together who could get together in our command posts or in a certain morale welfare tent. And uh, especially if we were on a camp that had multiple different college football fans, you know, there'd be a little rivalry there. But generally, uh, we were able to uh, be together as Nebraskans. And again, uh, one beauty or benefit of being a Nebraskan is that no matter where you go, uh, it's like family. Uh, I, one anecdote I can just relay is one of the journalists that uh, came to, uh, from the Walmart World Herald, uh, from, uh, came into theater, uh, needed transportation to get around, and he somehow found our location up in western Iraq. And I said, well, what's, what's your secret to get go to these uh, uh, aviation uh, facilities or ground, usually aviation try to fly around where you need to get to go. And he said, it's easy. And he pulled out a hat and it was a Nebraska hat. And he said, I will put on this Nebraska hat and I will go to the airfield and I'll just kind of walk around a little bit. And invariably someone will point out that I'm from Nebraska and say, ask, how can I help you? And he literally found a way to get to where he needed to go by using his, you know, you know Relatives he didn't really have, really have, but I mean relatives by being, what I mean, uh, as a metaphor for uh, fellow Nebraskans, uh, but he would just wear the Nebraska hat and someone invariably would point out that they could help and they would always, and it, he said it worked and they, he proved it by finding us at one point in theater. So that was just a little trick of the trade. And that goes to the Nebraska spirit and the camaraderie that, that we have. We're just one big happy family. <laughs> well, that's a great anecdote and and a, and a good way to wrap things up. We appreciate your time today. Welcome home. Glad to have you back. And uh, we hope to have you back again soon to kind of give us an update on how things are going. 
Well, thank you very much. It's an honor, privilege to be back here. And, and you know, Rick Alloway, you know you're a legend. And uh, your voice is just the voice, the, the perfect voice of, of Nebraska. And I appreciate having this opportunity to uh, not just come home, but really come home and, and, and spend some time to uh, have a conversation with you. My pleasure was all mine, good sir. The, our guest today, the 34th Adjutant General of the Nebraska Military Department, Brigadier General Craig W. Strong, a proud Nebraska native and a graduate of the University of Nebraska. This has been Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.